Hello and welcome to episode 31 of UFO Encounters Worldwide. This is your host, Jesse Peake, MUFON field investigator in the state of Pennsylvania, city of Philadelphia, and also a new member of the SCU, the Scientific Coalition for UAP Studies. Today we have an amazing episode for you. We have guest Terry Loveless. We'll be getting a deep dive into his experiences throughout the UFO world and what he thinks about what's going on today in the UFO community himself. So with that, strap on your seatbelts, we're going for a ride. All right, welcome to episode 31 of UFO Encounters Worldwide. This is your host, Jesse Peake, MUFON field investigator in the state of Pennsylvania, city of Philadelphia. And I happen to be sitting here with our special guest today, Terry Loveless. Terry, how are you doing today? I'm great. Thanks very much. Appreciate being here. Absolutely. Thank you for coming on, man. This is a big opportunity. I've been wanting to interview you for a while and actually talk to you about your experiences and uh, some of your thoughts on what's going on today. So thank you. Absolutely. Um, so I guess uh, I did want to thank you for your service. You were uh, United States Air Force for a while. Um, and I did want to ask you, when you were in, did you ever hear anything about UFOs prior to your incident? You know, not in the Air Force. It was kind of a non-topic. Nobody talked about it. Well, you know, maybe in whispers, you know, I was at uh, Whiteman Air Force Base, which was a nuclear base then, as it is now. Today, it's one of the B-2 bombers. Um, and I was, a, I was a medic, a first responder, EMT. So I got to know the security police guys. And, uh, you know, I never saw this, but uh, there, there were a rumor among the guys in the security police squadron about uh, uh, an orange uh, ring like thing that used to appear over the nuclear bunker where they stored the nukes for the B-52s and the right. warheads for the ICBMs. And this thing would appear and shoot down a red laser beam, supposedly. And it's a hearsay, just what I was told. Um, but yeah, it was talked about sometimes and just in whispers, uh, you know, among us enlisted people. Um, it, but it was, it, was, it was pretty much a non-topic. Right, right. Yeah, I was in the uh, Army National Guard. We didn't really talk about that stuff at all. Uh, I never actually heard it one time while I was in. So <laughs> I understand where you're coming from with that. Probably in whispers, but not not when you're training or doing anything special. You know what I mean? I do. Um, so, yeah, it's funny you said that, too, uh, about the craft coming over the nuclear ICBM uh, silos, because I'm actually doing a project where we're investigating UFOs and how they affect technology today. So that's a really cool story. I'll have to talk to you about that off air. Um, that's really cool stuff there. Um, yeah. So um, did you get into the UFO field on your own or was it the start of because of your experience? Well, you know, my experience was in 1977. Right. And uh, I didn't talk about it in the Air Force. I didn't talk about it. I went to uh, uh, I went to college after I got out of the Air Force, got a degree in, in psychology and then went to law school. And, um, you know, the only person I talked about it with was my wife. And, uh, you know, I made my living in the law, first in private practice and then in, uh, in civil service. Uh, and, uh, you know, my peers in the law uh, community, legal community, would not have understood, you know, I mean, I, I'd have lost my job. Uh, right. I was an assistant attorney general for the territory of American Samoa and then in the same capacity for the state of Vermont until 2012. Uh, I really didn't talk about it. 
for fear of losing my job. I mean, who can you really trust? Nobody. <laughs> Nobody. That's, That's right. right. I think Ben Franklin said, you know, three people know a secret. Uh, three people can keep a secret as long as two of them are dead. Yeah, right. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So you didn't get into it prior to your experience then? I did not. I okay. did not. What really was the catalyst for me to write a book and speak about this publicly um, was the x-rays I had taken. Yes, the implants, right? Yeah. You know, that just, um, for me, that was, and seeing those, you don't need an MD to, to see the implants. Right. And right. they're at terrylovelace.com if anybody wants to look at them. Uh, and it, it was validation for me that these things have put their hands on me. Right. And that, that was hard for me to process. Right. So let's start from the beginning and kind of give everybody who doesn't know your story a kind of little uh, read-through of it. Sure. Sure. I can... Uh, I can run through this pretty quick. In 1977, uh, I was working with my friend Toby in the emergency room, Whiteman Air Force Base, uh, as an EMT working, you know, somebody had a heart attack, we picked them up, a plane crash, we went, you know, pick them up. Um, and one night about 2 a.m. in April, I believe, he says, hey man, I got an idea, let's go camping. And I'm like, Toby, are you nuts? You know, I mean, I'm a city kid, I'd never been camping. He was from Flint, Michigan. I was Pretty sure he had never been camping. Um, but he made some good points about, I wanted to photograph wildlife, I had a new camera. We both lived on the base. And when you live on a nuclear base, there's not a heck of a lot you can do with the camera. <laughs> yeah, no, right? <laughs> so he had, he had the idea that we should go to this park, Devil's Den, in the northwest corner of Arkansas. And it was over six hour drive for us. And uh, we, had, we had beautiful state parks all around us. There was something about this place that just, uh, I don't know. Uh, I don't know what possessed us to make this, you know, trip. But we went down and, and we dodged the, in June of 1977, dodged the ranger station and took a road to the northwest uh, through the state park, that, you know, that was pavement and gravel and dirt. And then came to a chain across the road with a sternly worded, keep out, do not enter, no hunting, no fishing, no camping, you know, no nothing. <laughs> And I was going to turn the car around, and my buddy says, no, no, wait a minute, man, I got this. He hops out of the car, and what the park rangers had done is take a chain and just loop it on itself, make a noose and padlock it, and they draped it over the opposing post on a nail. So he hops out of the car, picks up the chain, just drops it to the ground. We were in, you know, we felt like Lewis and Clark. Right. And we found, uh, by just by happenstance, we found this elevated plateau. Um, at the time we walked it, the perimeter, and it seemed kind of horseshoe shaped. Uh, and I, I didn't bother getting a uh, Google Earth image of it because I would have thought it had been covered by 40 year old mature trees by now. But you know, that place is still there. Okay. And it's still off limits. And actually it's not even in Devil's Den State Park. I found that it is federal land owned by the Bureau of Land Management and leased to a private individual. Wow. So, Strange. Yeah. So we set up camp, and uh, this sounds cliche. And we had a nice campfire between us. About nine o'clock at night, we're carrying on a conversation and uh, had a nice breeze going. And it was uh, just pleasant. I remember, I remember one of the things I said before everything got started was, you know, I could see the, uh, the allure of this. I can see why people do this. This is really genuinely pleasant. You know, my friend's like, yeah, you know, I told you. Um, 
And, and a few minutes later, and I, and I know this sounds cliche, but I've had people with other experiences tell me they experienced this. Um, and that is that we lost the breeze and suddenly uh, the place was quiet. I mean, just a few minutes earlier, we were having trouble hearing one another across the fire because of the crickets and tree frogs and, and the stuff in the forest that make noises at night. Right, right. And now, now it's just like dead silent. I mean, the only thing we could hear was the crackling of the fire and uh, our voices. And it, it unnerved me. And I asked my friend, hey, Tobe, is, is this normal? You know, of course, like he's going to know. And he's like, yeah, you know, don't worry about the bugs, man. Uh, you know, the... Um, We've been laughing and cutting up, and our, our voices have just quieted them, and, and they'll come back. So I try to put it out of my mind, uh, and my friend suddenly turns his head to the left, and he's looking at something, and he says to me, Terry, were those lights there before? And I, I, at first, I couldn't see because his torso was in the way, so I'd stand up, take a step back. And on the Western horizon, there was a cluster of three little stars. Uh, they were all about the same size. They were all the same size and uh, about the same brightness. And it was a tight little triangle sitting just above the horizon, uh, but it was too far above the horizon to have been lights like from a parking lot or a roadway or something. And we were in a remote location. There was, there was nothing out there. And I said, no, I don't know what those are. And we're debating it back and forth. And then uh, within a few minutes, they moved. And what they did first was it rotated. The three stars rotated about 120 degrees. Uh, and aligned itself uh, parallel with the horizon. And then started to move up. And shortly after they started to move up into the sky, uh, I felt this wave of sedation, I swear, wash over me. And it was the weirdest thing. It felt like, um, well, it felt like, you know, the, the medication they give you before they roll you into an operating room. Right, okay. Uh, and I had, uh, no, all, you know, my fear level was about a six or a seven, uh, just because of the, uh, the quietness in the forest. And my fear level should have been, you know, pegging a nine or a 10, uh, but it wasn't. And, you know, it, it, it's interesting, you know, two people see something like this and have this kind of experience. I think it's human nature that you, you talk about it with one another. You validate each other's experience. Right. Absolutely. And there was none of that. Uh, I was, uh, I was just feeling, you know, very relaxed and calm uh, and in a way mildly disinterested. You know, I felt more like an observer than a participant in this thing. Okay. It was strange. And the three lights um, kept that orientation of triangle until it hit what I call a ceiling. And I have no idea how high it was, but, you know, I'll say 10,000 feet for lack of a better number. And what it did was it came to a brief stop and then it reoriented itself uh, to a horizontal position. I assume it was vertical going up and then was in a horizontal position. And we could see three lights in a row. So it was kind of clear that the, the apex of the triangle was pointed at us. And it meant it would be headed in our direction. And it started a descent. And during its descent, 
it did a, a thing where the, the point of the triangle would dip underneath and come around 360 degrees. Uh, and the thing is descending a lot faster than it, than it would up in the sky. Uh, and it did this, this uh, somersault thing twice. And I had the feeling it was done for our benefit or for our, you know, it was done to show us that, you know, this is no accident. This is, um, um, this thing is moving with intent. Right. And it uh, came in and it dimmed. There were lights on each point of the triangle. And as it got lower, it dimmed those lights uh, by about 50%. And we saw it glide, and it just glided in over the forest top. Uh, we were on this elevated plateau, as I said, flat on top. And the top of the plateau was about level with the treetops. And we were parked, kind of parked, camped, kind of off to the side. Uh, we weren't right in the middle of the thing, thank God, or this thing would have been right over our heads. And it, uh, it glided in and was about 3,000 feet over this meadow. And it came to an abrupt stop. And we saw, as soon as it came to a stop, uh, from the center of the triangle and underneath, it shot down this beam of white light. And it's weird, it was a, it was a visible white light, uh, very much like a high power searchlight cuts through fog. Yes. Um, but of course there was no fog. And it landed in our, in our campfire and stayed there for a minute, maybe less. And then it turned off, I mean, like somebody hit a switch. And then in its stead, there came this uh, laser light about the diameter of a pencil. And it would hit one spot in the campsite for like a millisecond, then hit another spot in the campsite for a millisecond. So it gave the illusion this thing was dancing around the campsite. It struck me in the chest a couple of times. I never felt a thing. Uh, I know it hit my friend. Uh, it hit, you know, it hit everything that was, uh, that we brought. It hit my car, my friend's cooler, his backpack, uh, me, uh, our tent. Uh, so it was. It was observing had, you, obviously, right? You know, I, I had the sense this thing was checking us out. Right. You know, it's it's, it's just it's checking us out. Uh, and that lasted just a couple of minutes. And then very suddenly, that feeling of sedation that I felt and mild disinterest morphed into sleepy you know there there's a distinct difference between sleepy and you know relaxed and you know, semi-sedated right and all i wanted to do was get up and go into the tent and uh throw my air mattress in dive in and go to sleep and uh my friend stood up first and he said show's over and he picked up his air mattress and went through it in the tent and you know no discussion between us yeah that's strange <laughs> yeah our, our emotions about it were just muted um, and i threw my air mattress in and i fell on i didn't bother to take off my boots my shirt anything i just i had my combat boots on and i fell on top of my that air mattress and i was out i mean the second my head hit that uh, inflatable pillow but i think i was um, i don't think i was asleep I'm not sure what it was, but it wasn't sleep. Uh, and I, uh, I woke up. In, in retrospect, we know it's about an hour before sunrise. But 
both of our mechanical wind-up watches, which were state-of-the-art in 1977, had stopped running. Uh, mine stopped at 240, Toby stopped at 242, and neither of those watches ever worked again, uh, which had saved mine. I, uh, I, I, was, I woke up by these lights flashing through the canvas of the tent. Very intense, very bright, uh, white, mostly white, but mixed in yellow and like a lightish green. And I see these lights and it wakes me up. And at first I'm, I don't have my wits about me. I'm thinking, you know, where am I? Oh yeah, I'm camping with Toby. And I see these lights and I think, ah, park rangers here. You know, I thought it was like the overhead flashing lights of a park ranger's truck. Yeah, right. You know, yeah, here to kick us out of, out of the park. <laughs> um, and I sat up and I noticed that my boots were unlaced. And that confused me because I knew that I didn't need them that way. And I, uh, I sat up and I was annoyed at that. And I, and I took off my boot and my socks were on sideways. And then, you know, I, I put them on properly and that confused me, but really didn't scare me. And then in one of these flashes of light, I see my friend Toby is on his knees looking at something outside the tent in the meadow. And I, I ask him, hey, Toby, what are you looking at? Is it park rangers? What's, what's out there? And then in one of these flashes of light, I could see tracks of tears down the right side of his face. Now, and that, that kicked my fear level from a, you know, a zero to about five. Right, absolutely. And I looked out of the tent on my side and I saw what I first took to be about 12, maybe 15 kids walking around the meadow. Um, and I couldn't see them clearly because they were, they were a bit away from us. And I could really only see them um, in silhouette whenever the lights would flash bright. Um, and I asked him, I said, Toby, man, what are these kids doing out here in the middle of the night, in the middle of nowhere? You know, and he tells me, he says, those aren't little kids, Terry. Don't you remember? They took us and they hurt us. And as soon as he said that, my fear level went to a 10. I had images of being inside this thing. And I realized that I was in a lot of pain. We were both burned. I had like the worst sunburn I'd ever had in my life, uh, but never blistered and never peeled. We both had uh, what they call flash burns to the eyes. Yes. It's what, a, what an arc loader would get if they didn't wear their, their mask. Yep. Uh, and that's very painful. It feels like you have sand in your eyes. And it makes you very photophobic. Uh, uh, it's very painful. So I, I, uh, at this point, I'm just terrified that one of us is going to cough or sneeze or something and draw their attention, and they're going to come over visit us you know and I had no way of knowing it It never crossed my mind that they were already done with us you know right it was just like, fear so we watched them and another light came down from the center of this thing uh, and it's it had that milky white visible light quality to it that the first light that hit our campfire had and the second that clicked on, these little guys turned their attention to this light. And it was a column of white light about 30 feet in diameter. It was about as broad as this thing was high off the ground. It had descended from 3,000 feet to just 30 feet over the meadow. That's why the lights were so bright when they flashed. Um, 
And these little guys turned their attention to it. And they had a, they had a real distinctive gait when they walked. Uh, they walked like they had sore feet or something. They, they had an odd gait. And they were broken up into pairs and threes. Um, and they had been like just strolling around this thing, uh, this meadow, like tourists or something. But as soon as that light kicked on, they, they headed toward it. And they would, in twos and threes, step into this light and dissolve into it. They would just pixelate out, very much like the old Star Trek thing. Yes. Where, where images would just, that's what they did. And they just would pixelate out into gone. Wow. And we watched, after the last two guys were uh, dissolved into the light, the light clicked off. And there had been a humming noise. We didn't hear it. The previous evening, but while this thing was down low, 30 feet over our heads, we could hear a, a, like a mechanical um, hum, you know, like a like being around a big piece of industrial machinery. Yes. And this thing, we watched it take off, and it didn't take off like yeah. a rocket ship. It just lifted straight up, and like a more like a hot air balloon. And uh, we watched it, and it gained speed as it went up, and it was three lights, then one light, and then gone. That's incredible. Absolutely incredible. So do you think, now you said you were on this plateau. Do you think that they, this was a normal thing for them? Maybe that was like their landing spot where they were there before, prior? Did you ever think? I've, 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 yeah, I've given that a lot of thought over the last 40, almost 45 years. And I, I really feel like we were keeping an appointment. I know that sounds odd. Um, but, you know, this idea started in April. Uh, and it became uh, kind of an obsession. And we, uh, you know, we, we didn't, we planned this thing meticulously. Uh, but when it came to the execution, the wheels fell off. Um, you know, we forgot a whole bunch of stuff that we had. We had a camp lanterns, fuel for it, a hatchet, um, a bunch of stuff that would have been helpful. Right. Uh, and we forgot half of it. And that's, we weren't, we just weren't that inept, you know? Right. Uh, we were used to uh, stocking an ambulance every night at the end of our shift. So we were good at making checklists and. and um, so it was as if something was drawing you to that spot. Yeah, looking back at it, I feel that way, I do. Okay. Uh, and, we, you know, it's crazy. My friend Toby had a camera in his backpack two feet from where he was lying. And neither one of us had the thought to get a camera out, his camera out and take a picture of this thing. All right. Yeah, because I can imagine you're having so many different feelings that you don't even think twice about having a camera. No, you know, and that, I found out that that's really not all that uncommon. I mean, as a no. field investigator, you probably went across that before. All the time. All the time. Yeah. I, you know, I put a little email address in the back of my book and I said, look, if you're, you know, I'm not a doctor or a therapist, but if you had an experience you want to share, I'd be glad to talk to you about it. And I thought, you know, maybe I'll get a hundred emails over the course of the, you know, course of the book's run. And I still get 20 to 35 emails a day. Wow. That's incredible. That's how many people have been affected like this that share the phenomenon. You know, it's it's a 
it's really, it's a privilege. You know, people have written to me and said, you know, I've never shared this with another human being. Um, I published a second book called Devil's Den, The Reckoning. Yes. And in the back of that, I have 25 stories uh, that people shared with me, you know, with their permission uh, and reprinted. And there, there's a couple of phenomena that I'm, I'm kind of a data-driven guy. I, I like to lay stuff out on a spreadsheet and they're looking for commonalities. And there are a lot of commonalities. So um, many of them. And I don't think people realize how many there are. And once you sit down and you start doing that, they start popping out of the woodwork left and right. And it, it, it's, it's crazy how, how many. Yes. You know, the one that gets me is um, on the way, on our way back to base, we had a six and a half hour drive. Well, we made the, the only conversation we really had was we made a pact not to tell um, the, the Air Force that we had this experience. Cause we were afraid they'd, they'd you know, get us a psych eval, maybe kick us out of the military. And, you know, there, there would go my, uh, my GI Bill education. Right. And we didn't want to risk that. No way. But something changed. Uh, you know, this guy had been my best friend, coworker. Uh, we were recently married, both of us and our wives were good friends. Um, but I suddenly wanted nothing to do with this guy. And I, I, can't reconcile that emotion now. I, I don't know what it was, but I found other people. And you know, uh, there's this great book by Ray Fowler called The Allagash Four about the four guys in Allagash, Maine, I think 1973. And twin brothers, Jack and Jim Weiner, uh, a guy named Rack, I think R-A-K, and I forget the name of the fourth guy. Uh, but they weren't, they were. They were best of friends. They did all the stuff together, you know, they drank together, fished together, hunted together, did all the stuff. And um, after their event, which in a lot of ways was very similar to what my friend and I experienced, they did what uh, I, I coined the term, the band breaks up. Uh, these four guys suddenly just kind of went in different directions. Do you think yeah. it's because you're trying to push yourself away from what happened in a way? In a way so, uh, and this will sound odd, but I think it speaks to the level of influence that these things have over us. I think that's probably the culprit. That's guess. I mean, it's, I can't, it's just conjecture. Right. But that, that phenomenon seems very common. Well, that's an incredible story. Um, I want to go ahead and take our break now. Um, when we come back, we can start picking it apart and get into it a little more. Um, sure. So uh, we're going to take our break now, everybody, and we'll come back with the second half of episode 31. So uh, we'll be right back. All Things UFO Facebook group is now the official sponsor of UFO Encounters Worldwide. They are listeners every week to the show, and on their Facebook group, you can find all the newest content and news in the UFO field. That's exactly where I go every time I hear about something new that's going on in the community, and you should too. Again, that's All Things UFO Facebook group. Check them out today.
Hey everyone, this is your host from UFO Encounters Worldwide. We have a new option now. You can sponsor and donate to help the show continue into the new year. There are new things that we need and equipment. And as you all know, I do this full time with no pay. And you could be a big help and help continue what we bring week in and week out with the new guests and the new content. Also the website that we hold with all the UFO phenomenon information by donating to our PayPal. You can go in the description of the episode below and that'll show you exactly how to do everything. And we appreciate all of our listeners for listening week in and week out. So if you can help, we really appreciate it. If not, that's okay. We still thank you for coming every week and listening to our show. Thank you everybody and have a wonderful rest of your show. Hey everyone, you know who it is, your host from UFO Encounters Worldwide, Jesse Peake. As you all know, I am a MUFON certified field investigator in the state of Pennsylvania, city of Philadelphia. If you ever have a UFO sighting and you want to get it investigated, go to MUFON.com and you can report your sighting or an encounter, and a field investigator will investigate your case absolutely free. This is what we do at MUFON. We're passionate, we're trained, and we're willing to help anybody that reports a case. So, again, if you want, if you have a UFO sighting and you want to report, go to MUFON.com today and a field investigator will investigate your case. And hey, who knows, you might even get me. Hey everyone, this is your host Jesse Peak from UFO Encounters Worldwide. I'm here today to let everybody know about a new project that I started to help research the UFO phenomenon. It's called Project Bat Tech 404. It stands for Battery Technology, and 404 is an error code that you usually get with, tech, with technology or a cell phone, GPS, or any kind of tablet that you hold in your hand. So it's Project Bat Tech 404, and what we're investigating is electrical malfunctions associated with UFO sightings or encounters. You can report your sighting or encounter battech404researchmembers at gmail.com today and one of our team members will get in contact with you and investigate your case. You can also go and check out our website today which is projectbattech404.wordpress.com Again, that's projectbattech404.wordpress.com You can go on there and see all of our goals of the entire project what we plan to achieve, and all of our trained team members that are included in this research project. Again, it's Project Bat Tech 404, and we are researching electrical malfunctions associated with UFO sightings or encounters. Check out the website today. Did you know UFO Encounters Worldwide has an official website for the podcast? That's right. You can go to ufoencountersworldwide.wordpress.com today and check out all of the cool content we have on the UFO phenomenon. You can get all of the content and information for each episode on the website. 
Plus, you can follow my travels and see some of my work. There's even new weekly updates on the UFO phenomenon with megalithic structures and different places from around the world with UFO sightings. That's ufoencountersworldwide.wordpress.com. Check it out today. All right, welcome back to the second half of episode 31 with our special guest, Terry Loveless. Uh, right before the break, we were discussing his encounter that he happened at Devil's Den State Park. Um, and uh, I guess um, let's talk about the aftermath of everything. Um, after you guys went back to base, um, what it was like being around each other or anything else particular that happened? Yeah, you know, the, the drive back to base was, was awkward. Uh, we, uh, we really didn't have any conversation. And again, that, that's strange for two people that have a, a shared experience like this, not to want to debrief or, right. you know. Um, Especially being friends like you guys were. You were best friends. We, we were best of friends. And that's something I couldn't reconcile back then, can't reconcile today, is that my, my feelings for this guy changed. And I mean, I'm, I think I'm a very loyal friend. If you're my friend, you're my friend. Right. Uh, and I suddenly wanted nothing to do with this guy. Do you think it was to push him away so you didn't have to deal with the event that occurred? No, I, I think it speaks to the level of influence that these things have over us. I don't know how they do it, um, but I think that they can manipulate our emotions. I know they can manipulate our uh, perceptions sight seeing you know um so why so do you, why do you think that they wanted you guys to 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 part ways what, what do you think was behind that you know i don't have any idea okay. um and i didn't realize it was a it was a phenomenon that it, that it's common right right uh, and like i say it makes no sense to me but so, that's that's what we did so did anything happen when you went back to base? You guys said that you weren't going to talk about this. Uh, anything else that happened? Yeah, you know, we went to the hospital. Our wives took us to the hospital because um, we were both burned. We both had these flash burns to our eyes. Uh, I, we were both severely dehydrated. Uh, that was our admission diagnosis was uh, dehydration. And I had the most thorough medical exam of my life. And, uh, you know, I knew the doctor and I, I was burnt. I mean, I was burnt all over my body. The soles of my feet were burned, um, you know, back and front. I mean, under my arms, everywhere I'm burned. Yeah, I'm sure and they the had doctor, to have asked you. What, I mean, what was the, what did you tell them? Well, here's what we agreed. Here's what we agreed to say. Um, we had an ethical issue. We weren't going to lie. Um, but we agreed that we would tell them that we went to bed feeling funny, woke up sick as dogs, and came home. Uh, we left all of our stuff there. I took my car, my keys, and my wallet, the tent, Toby's cooler, his backpack, uh, my my bag of stuff, uh, the food, everything. We we left there. Um, wow. And I think that's how they tracked us down so fast. Was Toby's address was in his backpack, written in a you know indelible marker so somebody found the materials yeah i think park rangers probably found that chain down and drove in to investigate and eventually found our little campsite and 
you know, I'm guessing here that probably called the base and said, looks like two of your airmen were down here and um, maybe they're planning on coming back. They left all their stuff. Uh, I'm uh, guessing, I don't know. Right. Uh, the second night of my hospitalization, uh, these two OSI agents came in to talk to me and um, intimidated me uh, quite a bit. I was scared to death. I mean, I'd never been in trouble with the police. I'd always been, you know, real straight and honest. And uh, they uh, asked me asked me questions and said, like, uh, you guys got a little marijuana plot down here? Is that what this is all about? Wow. Uh, well, you know, that was a big deal. I mean, today it's kind of comical, but back then, you know, growing uh, marijuana on federal land, I mean, could have ended us in, in Leavenworth. Absolutely. Uh, so um, I'm like, no, 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 sir, no, no, mar no marijuana, you know. Um, and he had this, this uh, interrogation, lasted about 30 minutes, he and a captain, uh, he was a major, the guy doing the talking was a major. And at the end of a, his interrogation, the, um, I stuck by my story, the captain left and it's just me and the major in, in my room. Uh, and my door was closed and he gets down next to my ear and he had this weird kind of Calvin Parker like accent from Mississippi, Alabama somewhere. Right. And he says uh, in a whisper, son, I know and you know, you two knuckleheads stumbled onto something while you were up there. And I didn't, I wasn't sure it was a question. Um, and I didn't answer him. I didn't say anything. I didn't know what to say. And he smiles and he says, oh, I think you know what I mean. And he says, all I want to know is how many pictures of it did you take? And, you know, without thinking, I blurted out, sir, I never took a single picture of it. And he just smiled because I think that's all he needed to hear. Right. He knew. I don't know how he knew, but he knew. Right. He knew, and I knew he knew, you know. So, that, um, so they knew everything that happened, most likely. They, they knew the whole situation. I, th I think so. I do think so. That's incredible. So whatever happened with your friend, was he interrogated as well? Oh, I'm sure. I'm sure. I only saw him one time. Um, and I violated the order. We had a no contact order. You know, and that meant, you know, no telephone conversations, no communication through third parties, kind of like a standard restraining order would be today. So they did that. So you couldn't contact each other anymore? Yeah. Wow. Yeah. They sure did. They did that. Matter of fact, they did that in the emergency room. When I was in the emergency room, um, the hospital commander, who I knew well, the base commander, who I knew of, but, you know, obviously didn't, didn't bum together, you know. Right. And two guys in civilian clothes, young guys in civilian clothes I didn't recognize, came into the exam room where I was and asked the doctor to excuse himself, uh, which he did. And um, the hospital command, commander was very formal. Uh, and he says, Sergeant Lovely, sure to have no contact with Sergeant Tobias. That means no contact by telephone. You, if you meet him in the base exchange, you're to turn around and walk in the other opposite direction. Uh, no, you know, no communication through third parties, no passing notes. You know, no communication means no communication. Wow. And uh, I didn't understand it at the time. I, well, I still don't understand it, really. Um, 
But I, I it, it didn't bother me because I suddenly wanted nothing to do with the guy. Right. Although I did see him one last time. And I thought that, um, you know, I worked with the guy for three years. I, I thought that it deserved a handshake, a pat on the back. Uh, a goodbye, in a way. A goodbye, yeah. You know, I, I thought that they'd maybe put an end to the anxiety of this experience. Right. It would be a good thing. Uh, but it didn't turn out that way. I, uh, we'd gone to the base grocery store, and on the way home, I asked my wife, I said, run by Toby's house. I'm going to run it to just tell him goodbye and wish him luck. And she's like, Terry, don't mess with these security police people. They, you know, they scare me. And I'm like, I know, they scare me too. I'll be in there four minutes and I'll be out. So uh, she was reluctant to do that, but she did. And I ran up to the door, door I'd been through, you know, a hundred times or more before and did what I always did. I, because the door was never locked. I wrapped on it three times with my knuckles real hard and opened the door and said, hey guys, it's me. And I walked into the foyer and uh, his wife, Toby's wife walked past and said, you're not supposed to be here and gave me kind of a hard look. And I said, look, I know I'm not here to confront anybody. I just want to tell my friend goodbye. And Toby was in the bedroom around the corner from the hallway and must have heard our exchange. And he came out and um, he looked he looked like a train wreck. Uh, he did. He was looked terrible. Uh, he was always very meticulous about his appearance, and he was uh, he was dirty. I mean, I know that they were moving, um, but he just he was unshaved. His hair was all wonky. He uh, had on a dirty T-shirt, and he was uh, shorter than I am. And I went there with the intention. I thought it would be appropriate to give the guy a hug, pat him on the back and say, good luck to you guys in Japan. And uh, I didn't do that. I held my hand out instead for a handshake and we kind of missed, you know, first time. And then finally made this inelegant kind of weird handshake. And uh, I said, I just want to wish you guys well. And he looked up at me and I could smell alcohol on his breath. I mean, like liquor. and. Toby was never a drinker. You know, he might drink a can of beer if we're playing cards or something, but I'd never seen him drink more than a can, can and a half, you know, and the rest would go on the chicken on the barbecue grill or something. But, right. Um, and I felt stunned for some reason. And I said, I just want to wish you well. And he looked up and he said, uh, it happened, didn't it, Terry? And I said, yes, my brother, it really happened. You're not losing your mind. It really happened. And he said, yeah, but why us? And I said, man, I don't have a clue why us. And I turned around, I ran out of the house, went back to the car, and I did not get the feeling of um, satisfaction that I expected from that encounter. Absolutely not, no. Yeah. So that was the last time I saw my friend. And that was the last time you ever spoke to him again? It is. Wow. Um, I, I tried to find him in the 80s and uh, had no luck whatsoever. I had his dad's phone number and called and talked to his dad. And his dad said, well, Toby, don't stay here. He kind of gave me the impression Toby might be um, homeless or something because he said, you know, he stops by now and then. Uh, and I said, well, could you give him my number, please? And he knew who I was. Right. And, and, and had him call me. And he said, sure, I'll take your number. So he took my number down and, and uh, 
then I, I, I thought this was maybe September, August. I thought maybe by Chris Thanksgiving, Christmas, I'll probably hear from the guy. Uh, and he never called me. Oh, wow. That's crazy. So then I called dad back and, for, and the number was disconnected. Ah, uh, wow. That's crazy. Crazy story. Um, sorry that happened to you. I really, I feel for you. I really do this whole story. Um, so with, with that being said, you later on found out that you had two objects that were in your leg. Um, did you find this out by going to the doctors or did you find these yourself? No, I found these out purely by happenstance. Uh, I retired from the state of Vermont in January of 2012, and we moved to Dallas, Texas, where we are today. And uh, in October of 2012, some nine months after my retirement, um, I woke up and I couldn't bear weight on my right leg. I told my wife, I said, hey, I'm, I'm going to need to go. I get all my medical care from the VA. I said, you're going to need to take me to, to the ER. Uh, I guess I got to have my leg checked out because I can't bear weight on it. Uh, and, and I want to be clear from the start. The things that are in my leg had nothing at all to do with my pain. Okay. The, the pain and instability in my right knee was caused by what's called a baker's cyst. Nothing to do with baking. It's a guy <laughs> named Baker found it, you know. And, right. uh, so, um, and it's benign. You catch it like you catch a cold. And uh, it's, you know, a pain in the leg for a couple of weeks. And, you know, you need a cane and uh, some Tylenol, and then you're good to go. Okay. So nothing to do with the, uh, with the implants. But the, they wheeled me from the ER uh, into the x-ray room. And the x-ray technician took a couple of shots. And then looked kind of confused, came back, repositioned me, took two more, uh, and then asked me, she said, have you uh, been in some kind of accident, uh, something that would account for a piece of metal in your leg? And I said, no, I've never, you know, I've never had any injury to that leg. You know, I, I did fall when I woke up, and I fell on a, you know, on a carpet. I mean, I wasn't, right, no, right. I, I never had any, real, I, I told her it was a skin knee as a kid, maybe, but that's it. And she said, well, I asked a radiologist to come down and take a look at your films. Now, I knew that was unusual. I, I knew uh, that, you know, they take your, take your x-ray and then they throw it in a, in a stack and the radiologist gets to it in a week if it's nothing emergent and, you know, does a report on it. Right. So um, the x-ray, the radiologist comes down and he's looking at the films and I can't see them. And he says, um, he asked me the same question she did, and of course, same answers. And he said, well, you had to have had an accident uh, with that right leg. And he says that, you know, there, there's a, what looks like a man-made structure uh, above your knee. And for this thing to be in your knee at this depth would require, uh, um, you know, uh, some, kind of, some kind of trauma, some kind of violence. Right. And uh, I said, no, I've never had an accident, never. And he said, oh, you know, you may not remember, but you, there, there's a scarring in me. <laughs> and we kind of got this back and forth, right? right? And he had me take off my pants again, examine my knee. And he went so far as to use a black light to look for a little handheld black light with the lights turned off. Because I didn't know this, I guess scars were fluoresce under yes. a black light. Uh -huh. And uh, he was visibly shaken. And 
he turns the lights back on. I said, Doc, let me ask you, how often is it that you find a foreign object in a human body like this and there not be a corresponding scar? And he said, never. He said, I've been a radiologist 23 years. He said, I, I have no explanation for how this thing got into your leg. That's so, incredible. You know, that was a real pivotal moment. That, that was validation that these things did put their hands on me. Absolutely. You know? that's, that, that's proof. That's 110% proof. And that, that was the catalyst. That was the idea to write a book and to speak publicly about it. Right. And, you know, I'm not trying to convince anyone of anything or change anybody's mind about anything, but uh, I think it's important that 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 stigma that goes with uh, having a sighting or having some kind of event like we had needs to be gone. I mean, absolutely. I yes. And that's the, that's the thing, like, this is why I like getting together with people and collaborating and having shows like this and other people that have shows like this, it gets the word out. Um, and then other people that have had similar experiences can relate to other people and feel better about it. Um, and I think it's, it's a great thing when, when, like you yourself wrote both of these books and how many people it's probably helped, you know? You know, that's, that's a privilege. I've, I've got some nice emails from people. I hope it has, I hope it has helped, uh. You know, some a lot of people wrote to me and said that my story triggered uh, memories in them of uh, of things that that they hadn't thought about in years. Right, refused to think about. It's probably because so, you helped them look at things a different way and a different perspective they've never done before, and it probably made them the memories start clicking. Um, so I, I work with experiencers, and now I'm joining the ERT with MUFON, which is the Experiencer Resource Team, and. When you go different ways and you say certain words, it kind of clicks different memories into perspective again, ways that they didn't think before, you know, and that's probably exactly what your book did for people. You know, I'm, I'm in a training. Uh, I'm taking classes now. My, my undergraduate degree is in psychology. And um, by the end of January, I'm going to be certified as a clinical hypnotherapist. Wow. Okay. And I want to um, jump back in. And maybe instead of promoting my myself or my books, maybe I can give back something. And folks that have had an experience and feel like they need a regression to try to find, discover what ha actually happened. Right. That uh, maybe, maybe I can uh, help those folks. That's absolutely, uh, that's a great idea. I highly respect you doing that. I respect that you wrote the books and shared your story too. Um, that's a big, a big thing to come out publicly, you know? <laughs> Um, you know, it was a real catalyst for me. It it was a, it was it was it was good to, to write it, and, and uh, I'm glad it was well received. Yeah, definitely. And they were both uh, bestsellers, correct? They were. See, that's amazing. So people actually that tells you right there that people were were um, you know finding finding help through your words, and um, you know getting validation for their own experiences as well. So um, that just speaks for itself, right there. So congratulations on that. And I, I highly, highly respect you for doing that. And thank you for that. Well, I appreciate that too. No problem. Um, I, uh, yeah. No, please go ahead. Um, so before we, before we run out of time, I did want to get some of your thoughts on what's happening in, in today's field. Um, you know, what your thoughts were maybe on the June 25th uh, report that came out from the government. Uh, just real brief, a couple um, the word threat 
is mentioned something like 26 times. Yes, yes. <laughs> and, you know, you've had military experience. You know the word threat has a, has a distinct meaning in the military. It means threat to national security. Correct. And uh, there was a recent document that was, um, I don't know if it was leaked. I got a copy of it uh, that talks about the new uh, department that's supposed to be made yes. for investigating uh, UAPs now. The uh, DOD. Correct. Yeah. Right, right. And the original draft, I, I kind of follow the legislation as it moves along, and the original draft called for a, um, a um, the words were mostly civilian uh, advisory committee. Yes, correct. And the Congress knocked that out. So that's no longer happening. That's no longer going to happen. Wow. So a, that was what we know, were trying to fight for, you know? That's the main part because the, even uh, I'm a part of the SCU as well, the Scientific Coalition for UAP Studies, and two okay. of their yeah. two of their scientists were supposed to be on that advisory board. So I didn't know that they knocked that out. I had no idea. Yep, it's gone. Wow. So it's going to stay in the government's hands now. Yeah, it's going to stay in the government's <laughs> hands. There was a couple things about that. Um, the document that I read uh, was recommending that um, Congress act to uh, keep the lid on this. Uh, and then in, in later writing, it's kind of, I mean, I'm sure in, in, the, uh, in the confidential document, the secret document, there's a better explanation, but the guy said that Congress needs to act or, you know, soon, or they'll be held, you can be held, speaking to the Congress directly, or you will be held responsible. Right. And, you know, to me, that implies an event. You need to act soon, or you'll be held responsible. So like that means something's going to happen soon, and it's going to be an event of some kind that, right. uh, you know, the voters would hold legislators responsible for. Right. And I think that's kind of a huge, if you read between the lines, and I'm making assumptions here, but uh, that's the way I read it. Absolutely. And that's what we were talking about that, you know, why come out after 75 years all of a sudden and, and start giving this stuff out and slowly leaving crumbs and, and coming out with these reports? Um, were they preparing us for something that's going to happen and it's inevitable? So they can't, they have to slowly start doing this now because there's nothing they can do and it's going to happen. Um, and that kind of goes along with what you're saying there, you know, are they preparing us for something? Yeah, it sure sounds that way. Yeah. So um, as, a, as a community in the UFO community, where do you think we should be headed, um, what we should be fighting for, um, for transparency? Well, you know, I mean, the only avenue that we have is, um, is uh, through, through our votes, through the people that we put in the House and the Senate. Right. And, uh, you know, I, I, I just, I'm not real hopeful that, uh, that that's going to bring us any kind of... Uh, of, uh, of meaningful disclosure. You know what I think needs to happen is whatever event, you know, God forbid it's horrendous, but whatever event they suspect might happen um, needs to happen. You know, there needs to be a catalyst toward disclosure. And, you know, if there's 600 UFOs over the UN building, that, that, would, be, that would be a pretty good uh, incentive <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> to, for people to act. Absolutely. 
that's what we need. You know, and that's what everybody says, you know, we're not going to believe it until UFOs land in the White House lawn. So that's exactly what we need. You're right. <laughs> and then, you know, even if that happens, only 60% of the people are going to believe it anyway. Right, right, right. <laughs> we're still always going to have non-believers. It'll always be that way. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I've been trying to reach out to my my senators and congressmen and, and write to them so they do support, help to push them to support the uh, new bills coming out, like the the Gilbrand and Rubio amendment, but you're telling me oh, that yeah. this is no longer going to happen that way, uh, which is unfortunate because that's what we want. We need civilian-based organizations advising these people that really have no idea. Well, I'm not going to say no idea, but the people that usually put in charge for public use have no idea about the phenomenon itself. Um, but the people in the background do. But um, yeah. it would have been finally nice to have some people from the SCU who really scientifically research this stuff and maybe some people from MUFON who constantly deal with it every day. It would have been great to have them advise in ASPRO, you know? Absolutely. That's a shame. It is. It really is. Um, so I guess before we end today, do you want to tell everybody where they can uh, find your website, your books? I have everything in the description below the, web, uh, the episode, but if you want to go ahead and tell them where they can follow you at and get your information. Sure. Uh, I have a website. It's poorly maintained, I'm afraid, uh, but there's some interesting images on it. That's at terrylovelace.com. Uh, my, uh, my books are, are available as, uh, you know, uh, digitally in a Kindle version. Paper and uh, I also recorded um, both of my books on audiobooks available on Audible and on Amazon. Um, so the audiobooks are me just reading. I read, I didn't hire a, you know, too cheap to hire a, a voice artist, right? So uh, <laughs> no, I wanted it to be in my own words. Of so course. I just read each book and uh, I made an audiobook out of it and those seem to be popular. Uh, yeah. Amazon, Amazon.com is where i'm at okay great excellent i put everything in the in the description so everybody can find that down there um and in the bio um and we definitely have to have you back on because there's not enough time in the day to have one conversation or like this um there's so much more stuff we could have dove into about your experience and your thoughts on everything going on um so i would definitely be honored if you would come back on maybe in a month or two and we can uh kind of go through the other stuff we didn't get to hit today that'd be great Sure. I'd be happy. My pleasure. Um, that'd be amazing. Um, you're somebody I look up to and, and uh, you've, you, you know, I, I paid attention to your encounter and the work that you've done uh, throughout my career coming up. So it was an honor to have you on today. And I thank you very, very much, Terry. Well, I thank you. I thank you for the opportunity. No problem. Um, and uh, so that's going to be it for our episode today. Um, next week, we are going to have MUFON State Director of California, Earl Gray, on. Um, so stay tuned for that, everybody. And uh, if, like I said, if you need the information on Terry's information, it is in the description of the episode below. So with that being said, we thank everybody for tuning in to episode 31. This is your host, Jesse Peak, MUFON field investigator in the state of Pennsylvania. And remember to keep your eyes in the sky. What a wonderful way to end episode 31 of UFO Encounters Worldwide with our special guest today, Terry Loveless. That was an amazing interview, and I want to let everyone know to please go over and check out our sponsor of UFO Encounters Worldwide. 
Our sponsor is All Things UFO Facebook Group. You can go over there and find all your latest news on the UFO phenomenon, plus other stuff that you probably didn't even hear about yet. They're usually the first and on top of everything when they go and get new information about the phenomenon itself. So go over and check out All Things UFO Facebook Group. And just so everybody knows, next week our guest is California MUFON State Director Earl Gray. That will be a very interesting conversation. So thank you everybody for tuning in today and remember to always keep your eyes in the sky.